My name is Malavika Prasid, and I'm the host of Your Favorite Book, a podcast all about asking that big question, what's your favorite book and why? I have no real credentials for any of this. I just love books, and I love talking to writers and readers alike about the books that have moved them, inspired them, and made them who they are. And it's been a long time since we've had an honest-to-goodness childhood favorite on this show. It's been a while since we've really dug deep into a book you're truly obsessed with. But my guest, Vaishnavi Patel, has really brought us a book for that. And so join me as we discuss Gregor the Overlander with Vaishnavi Patel. Let's jump in and welcome to your favorite book. All right, uh, Vaishnavi, welcome to the show. Um, I hope the weather is good for where you are right now. We just started getting a little bit more of a spring climate around here. Where are you based? We're in Chicago. I'm in Chicago. Oh, I grew up in Chicago. I'm, really? Yes. I, well, I grew up in the suburbs. I grew up in Roselle. Okay, um, yeah. Which is right next door to Schaumburg. And then I went to school in Chicago, and then I lived and worked there for a couple years. So I know how Chicago weather is. <laughs> Yeah, you know, there's the there's the winter, and then there's the fake spring, and then there's more winter, and then there's real spring. So yes. are, you, are, are you currently in the, like, fake spring, it's about to snow kind of period? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's where we're at right now. And then that'll probably stick around for maybe the rest of April, so. <laughs> I'm, I usually, I so I'm currently out on the East Coast, and I always feel very homesick for Chicago, because I love it, except in April, where I'm like, it's not snowing here, but it's definitely snowing in Chicago. <laughs> oh, for sure. For sure. That's just that's just how it is here. So glad you you know that weather. But um, I have to start off by saying so bringing this to you know, our discussion today, I have to start off by saying I don't usually approach writers the way I approached you. I literally just slid into your DMs just because I was, was like, great. I got to read this book. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm just gonna put myself out there and be like, come be on my show. Your book looks amazing. And it was. And I'm just glad I, I took the risk. Everybody shoot your shot. That's my message for you right now. I love that. No, I like you were the first person actually to like ever approach me and be like, hey, I'm like interested in your book. So it was a very exciting moment for me as well. Which is baffling to me because I just was seeing your book everywhere. Maybe it's the the company I keep, you know, the South Asian book community is small, but we are loyal to our own. And I was seeing it everywhere. And I'm like, I need this. And so um, we're getting ahead of ourselves. Can we start off by you telling us a little bit about yourself and about your book? Yeah, of course. So um, I'm Vaishnavi Patel. I, as I said, grew up in Chicago, um, but I'm out on the East Coast for law school. Um, I'm currently finishing up my last semester of law school. And I also write. So I am the author of Kaikei, which is my debut novel. And it retells the ancient Indian epic, the Ramayan, from the perspective of somebody who's sort of been viewed as the evil stepmother character within the story. Mm-hmm. And then, okay, first, I got to start off by saying, you wrote this book while in law school, girl, do you sleep? I I do actually sleep. I love to sleep. But yes, I did. I did write this in law school. Um, in part, I think it was made possible by COVID, which is a horrible thing to say. But <laughs> I lost a social life and I gained much more of a writing life. There you go. You know, there, there's a silver lining to some of this, which is, you know, terrible to say, because obviously the pandemic, nobody wanted it to happen. But it's good to find at least some of that time for yourself to pursue these projects. But 
I'm just, to me, I mean, the first thing that came to me reading this book, obviously I really enjoyed it. And I just want to know about your, your writing journey. So you, you've gone from, you're, you're this, you're a law student, you're finishing up, uh, you're writing about a topic that I think sort of in the publishing world might be considered a little more niche, a little more typically unmarketable. And now this book's gotten attention. You've got a book of the month nod. So like, where did all of this start and how long has this project been in the making? Yeah, so this, I mean, really, this book started with me as a child hearing stories from my grandma, um, because she would always retell the Ramayana to us in her way. And then I remember her and my mom getting into this sort of spirited discussion, we'll call it, about Gaikai specifically, um, because as my mom pointed out, the Ramayana really wouldn't have happened without the character of Gaikai. So mm-hmm. for readers who are, you know, less familiar with the Ramayana, um, the Ramayana follows this prince named Ram who is exiled from his kingdom and ends up having a bunch of adventures because of that. And Gaikai is the character who exiles him. So mm-hmm. without her, you don't have any story. And so something about this tension where she's viewed as really evil but is kind of necessary to the entire epic um, just sort of stuck with me. So I would keep sort of like looking for material about Kaiki or I'd find myself just like Googling her every so often. And eventually I was like, this, I should, I should do something with this. And mm-hmm. so that was sort of when I decided to write Kaiki. I drafted it while just when I had started law school, it was like a new time in my life. I was like, let me try writing this book. Um, I cannot for the life of me explain why I thought that was the right decision. Um, <laughs> But from there, I, you know, I wrote the book, queried, got agented, got a deal. And then, you know, you sort of, you get a deal and then the book is two years away from being published. So for a long time, I was just like me revising, doing all of these things. And now that Kaike is two weeks away from being in the world, it's very, it's like a mind, not create, I I just totally lost. I don't even know how to describe it. Um, (laughs) It's. It's a mind-blowing experience, let's put it that way, to see other people reading my book and like having it in their hands and all of that. And it's really exciting. Um, I think that in a way I'm fortunate that there is a lot of hunger for ancient stories retold or familiar stories retold. Um, And Kaike kind of fits into that niche. Yeah, yeah, I think that that makes a lot of sense. And I I like how you brought up, you know, between the deal and the book coming out, there's like so much time in between. And I think that some people who aren't kind of in the publishing sphere or in the writing sphere don't know that, you know, you you think you sell the book and now it's on its way like immediately, like when do we buy it? And there's just so much time in between. So really, is there an element of sometimes forgetting the prose itself when it's been so long since you've written it? Absolutely. So I you know, I think I finished past pages, which is sort of like the final round where you get to look and find any um, typos, which of course you find a million of. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I finished that in the fall. And so it's been probably a good six months since I last even just like opened the pages of this book. And, um, you know, I got my finished copies uh, like a week ago and I opened up the book to a random page and I was like, who wrote this? <laughs> I don't remember writing any of these words. Um, right. So you do, you you kind of do forget. And I think it makes for like a kind of nice uh, launch experience because you're also kind of getting to like rediscover and re-experience it. Um, 
but it's funny talking so much about Gaiki when I spent a lot of the fall drafting a new project. And so I'm like mm-hmm. very much in that project and the research for it and the perspective of it. And then to come back to Gaiki, who sort of feels like a very familiar character now has been, has been really fun. Um, but yeah, the lead time from, especially for a debut novel is often two full years. Mm-hmm. So it's, the time where I was working most intensely on this was like early 2021 and we are now in mid 2022. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. And what you brought up just leads me nicely to my last question. It was the point of research. So as you mentioned, you know, the world is kind of hungering for these mythology retellings. And I personally love seeing you breathe new life into the Ramayana, especially when you kind of grow up with several of these tenants as givens, you know, Kaike is this evil character and Rama was obviously in the right and blah, and so on and so forth. You have these tenants that sort of are integral to how you learn the story. And so I'm interested in knowing, you know, where was the balance between the source material and your imagination, the research versus the creative decisions? Um, some of your choices aren't, you know, what we think of as canon, but I'd love to know mm-hmm. like, where they came from. Yeah. So I think there's like multiple parts to that. So first, um, as I discovered when researching for this book, the Ramayana that we know is not, first of all, it's not the only even ancient historical version of the Ramayana. There's many, there's like six or seven sort of ancient Sanskrit versions. Mm-hmm. And then there's also popular, um, like more recent retellings like Tulsidasa's Ramachitramanas, which is sort of like what repopularized the Ramayana. Mm-hmm. And that's from like the 1600s, I believe. Um, so there's just so many of these versions. And then you also get into, as it's spread through Southeast Asia, they have their own versions. There's a Jain Ramayan. Like mm-hmm. there's so many different versions that a lot of choices in Gaikai were actually picking pieces from other, other versions. Mm-hmm. Um, because there's such already a wealth of interpretation out there. And there's versions in which, you know, Ravan, for example, who's sort of the bad, not sort of, he's definitely the bad guy in the Ramayana. He's a, mm-hmm. He kidnaps somebody. He intends to rape her. He's bad. Um, but he becomes like a tragic anti-hero, and some of his actions are reframed or he doesn't do some of the worst things that he does in the original Ramayana. And that turns him sort of into this, um, you know, doomed figure who you kind of are supposed to feel sympathy for. That That's a version that's um, prevalent in Southeast Asia, for example. Um, so some of those elements I, you know, picked up. And then others I just wanted to change for sort of like the ease of telling the story or to sort of differentiate the story because I love the original Ramayan. And I think that Ram is like a really fascinating character that does provide some like moral and religious guidance um so I really I I wanted to make sure that it was clear that this was a completely different story so there's some small things that I've changed for example um in the original Ramayan the exile period is 14 years in this version it's 10 years and Mm. that change was made kind of as like a little nod to the fact that this is this is a different version of this story um, so some some pieces are entirely my own. Yeah, I, I, I really like that because I didn't even think about the idea of all the different versions of the Ramayana because, 
you're right. It's one of the most ancient stories we have, you know, next to the Mahabharata, it's sort of up there. Mm-hmm. And there's all these different versions. There's so many places where Hinduism has been practiced in some mm-hmm. way, shape or form. And I'll admit that my own knowledge of it probably comes from like Amar Chitrakadas or something like that. <laughs> doesn't, you know? doesn't all of ours. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, I know it from picture books. And this is a conversation I've had with other um, South Asian writers before when you talk about it all comes back in some way to an Amar Chitrakada for a it, lot of it us. It really does. It really, I mean, I literally have some Amar Chitrakada books on my bookshelf right now. But I think, I think that's part of it, which is that the Amar Chitrakata version is obviously a very, it's a comic. It's a very abridged mm-hmm. version. But even the versions that we like hear or see in media are often very abridged. So um, I don't think this is a spoiler because it's in like part one of the book. But in Kaikei, the book, um, Dashrath, her husband, or soon-to-be husband, makes her a promise before they get married that her son is going to be the heir. Mm -hmm. And that's in the Valmiki Ramayan, like the very original Ramayan. Um, Kaikei's sort of bride price is that her son, her birth son, will be made heir. And that sort of puts a lot of her later actions in the original even in a whole new light because she's been given this promise and she's just trying to get what she was promised. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's omitted. Like I was so shocked to learn that and then shocked to read it in the Valmiki Ramayan because that just never told to us. So, so much of the Ramayan because it's like, you know, tens of thousands of verses. It would be impossible for Mm -hmm. everyone to read that version um, so necessarily it's abridged and some of this context slips away. Yeah, that that's a really good point. You know, what do you keep for brevity's sake? But at the same time, it's integral to the narrative in many ways. And it's integral to her motivations, which you definitely explore here. And so this might be a bit of a, a controversial thing a little bit, but have you faced any backlash with reinterpreting something that a text people consider very sacred and, you know, not something to to mess with, so to speak? Because you think about something like Greek mythology, you know, that's a practice that's no longer really being practiced as a religion versus, versus Hinduism. This is very much a religion and practice. Mm-hmm. Did you face any kind of backlash for taking a feminist angle or taking a different angle in many ways that you do with the, with the text? Yeah, so I've definitely gotten already... Um like comments, you know, either on social media or, um, you know, like early reviews that have been um, upset about some of the changes. And I think there's, uh, you know, sort of two groups of changes. Some people are just, you know, upset about like, why would you change this myth? Or like, why would you portray Indian mythology in this negative light? Because some of what Kaike is about is sort of critiquing um, patriarchy within our ancient myths and texts. And so some people are like upset about that. And to that, I say, you know, it's also my culture. So I kind of feel like I have a right to say or critique what I want to ab- within my culture. Um, mm-hmm. And that's not, it's me critiquing this doesn't mean that I don't think Christianity, for example, has a ton of problems. It just means that that's not what I want to write about and critique. Um, and then there's the other camp that's like very upset specifically about the portrayal of Ram um, mm-hmm. because he is such an important religious figure. And in the book, he's a lot more complicated. And I actually, you know, the version of him in the story is very much like a child um, and he's going through his own growth journey. And I, you know, the place at which he ends up in the book 
I'm trying to figure out how to say this without spoiling anything, but the, the place where he ends up, I think, is kind of admirable. And that mm-hmm. he it shows that he is capable of like growth and change and um would make a very good king. So it's just a different way of getting there. Um, but I think there's people whose religious identity is built around him. And yeah. it's caused a lot of problems in India. So I don't really feel um particularly inclined to listen to people who are that upset about that particular element but it because it's also my religion my culture and like my belief system I feel pretty comfortable putting my voice in there yeah I really appreciate that ownership first of all because you also think you know who has been historically writing these stories typically it is men who are rendering these stories and telling the story of men and portraying women in a way they deem fit and the the point of view that's often not included is the point of view of women. And so I think you definitely, you know, throwing your hat in the ring here, it is your culture, it is your right to draw attention to a story that's, you know, thousands and thousands of years old and has had many retellings over the years in many different forms. I mean, I I think, you know, that that's totally on your side there for sure. Yeah. And I think there have been some more modern interpretations of the Ramayana through the eyes of Sita, Um, Mm -hmm. that also are presenting a critique of sort of the patriarchal norms that are present in these myths. And they've received similar pushback and similar Mm -hmm. criticism. Um, So I think that this isn't, it's not just a kaikai problem. It's a, I think it's present whenever people try to tell a different side of the story or like push back on some of the um, assumptions that people have made about which roles belong to who. Um, The book that kept coming to mind for me reading this was a book we discussed on the podcast a few few months ago, which was uh, The Palace of Illusions by mm -hmm. Chitra Banerjee Divakaruni, who wrote a retelling of the Mahabharata, but through the point of view of Draupadi, who is also a controversial figure in many ways. I mean, not maligned in the way that Kaikei was, but has, you know can be attributed as causing downfalls in many ways. Like her womanhood, her pride leads to a bit of the downfalls of the Pandavas in many ways. And so having Mm -hmm. that told in her story with that backing, you know, that really reminded me of that book. And I guess I'm wondering, you know, obviously you were inspired from the source material, but are there other writers that you've drawn influence from and that have shaped sort of who you are as an author? I mean, I think I read a lot of fantasy um, and I love reading like any sort of folklore retelling. So in addition to reading, you know, Circe and Ariadne, which are two popular myth retellings, I, you know, read books like The Witch's Heart or Sister Song or Wolf and the Woodsman or just like what's coming to mind right now when I think of myth-based retellings. Um, But I think that a lot of, I've read a lot of that tradition and I, that's really inspired me to think that I can write my own Mm -hmm. story and like put that out there um, as well as sort of thinking about how retellings can push back at certain norms Um, I've it's funny you mentioned the palace of illusions because I really love it and I've been meaning to reread it for a long time um, because I read it like eight years ago or something like that Um, but I remember being just like so thrilled that there was a Indian myth modern book out there that I could read. Um, So I think that that probably has like wormed its way in my subconscious somewhere. Yeah, for sure. I I love seeing more of these retellings because 
uh, Hindu mythology and just, you know, Indian mythology in general is just so ripe with opportunities for storytelling and retelling. Mm -hmm. I mean, there, you can point to the most minor figure and they have a whole arc. They have a whole story, you know, they, they all have a background and it's just so fascinating to see more and more of these tellings come up. I mean, Kaiki is far from a minor figure, but like her backstory that you completely explore and bring to light, you know, it's a lot more than you would typically think of when you think of pivotal figures in, in the Ramayana. So it's just, you know, I really love that more and more of these books are opening the floor and definitely in the realm of fantasy and historical retellings, which is where we always need more South Asian voices. Absolutely. And I think what you said about, you know, every minor character has their own arc or story is so true. And I think part of that is because these epics come from like this really rich oral tradition which mm-hmm. sort of allowed for all of this variation. Like you could pause and sort of recite this other character's history and then come back. And so I think that it just gives us a lot of material, a lot of material to play with. And that's, I think that's what I feel um, has sort of inspired me to put my voice out there and to write this book is that I think a lot of the retellings, as much as I love them, come from a very Western tradition and they're often mm-hmm. working with myths that are you know treated as sort of fictional myths and I would distinguish the Ramayana as saying that it's not necessarily a fictional myth to a lot of people it's a Mm. it's like a religious foundational myth which is different and so um I really hope we get more South Asian authors sort of writing like the Mahabharata itself could be like 50 different books and none of them would be duplicative or boring it would be like 50 separate stories so I'd love yeah, that. For sure. Absolutely. And now to sort of take a different direction. So turning to the book you chose for this episode, which is, um, you know, you, when you think about the world of fantasy, you get a lot of these series and I have a strict, you know, no series rule, not because I'm opposed to series books, but just because I don't have time to read whole series <laughs> books for shows. But um, you chose book one of the Gregor the Overlander series, which is Gregor the Overlander mm-hmm. by Suzanne Collins. Um, and I hadn't read any, I hadn't read these before. I haven't even read The Hunger Games. And so when I saw the book, I was like, Suzanne Collins, I've heard that name before. And then I look at the back, it's like, by the author. I'm like, oh. (laughs) So this is just me being like out of the loop. And so before we get started with talking about the book itself, can you tell me a little bit about where you were when you read this book? Did you read it like when it came out? Yeah, so I don't remember what year it came out, but I'm pretty sure I read it like shortly after it was mm-hmm. it was out. Um, I remember uh, my friend recommended it to me. She, I was like at her house and she was like, I got this new book and you have to read it. Um, so I think we were seven or eight. This would have been like t- mm-hmm. 03, 04. Yeah. Um, and I remember reading it and it blowing my mind and like waiting for each new book to come out. And actually, when Suzanne Collins came out with The Hunger Games, at first I didn't read it. And I kept hearing people talk about it. And they were, I was like, who's it by? And they were like, Suzanne Collins. And I was like, I've read something by her before. Like The Hunger Games to me is Suzanne Collins' other series. Right. <laughs> um, because this series is like so foundational to like, I don't know, my who I am as a reader. Um, but yeah, when you ask me what book I, you know, I always freeze when somebody asks me my favorite book, but I figure here I can like just give you the book that I think about on a weekly basis and have for like 20 years almost, um, yeah. which is Gregor the Overlander. 
And I'm so excited that this book, you know, sparks that in you because that always leads to the best possible discussions. And so for those of you that haven't read these books, you know, you're not alone. I hadn't read them either. So a brief summary about this book before we dig in. So in this book, Gregor and his family live in a small apartment in New York City where Gregor continues to cope with the presumed loss of his father. And then after falling through a laundry chute, Gregor and his little sister Boots find themselves in a mysterious underland where humans, rats, bugs, bats live in this tenuous balance. But then war breaks out and Gregor finds himself caught up in the action and thrust into the politics of the underland. So that's a very brief overview. It doesn't cover absolutely everything, but I want to know, you know, this book, you think about it all the time. It's come to you time and time again. What struck you about it back then and how has that changed for you over the years? Yeah. So when it, when I first read it, I just like loved the idea. I love it's It's almost like portal fantasy where it's like you, as a little kid, you can believe that you'll like find this entrance into this magical world. Um, and I loved that. And then I also loved, um, one specific character in this book, Rip Red, um, mm-hmm. who's the the rat. <laughs> um, <laughs> and my sister still like sends me memes about this character like 20 years later because that's how obsessed I am. Anyways, um, but like it's like the classic like grumpy mentor mm-hmm. figure character. And I just like loved that. That was my first exposure to that trope. Um, nothing has ever given me that same amount of joy but things have come close um (laughs) but yeah so like as a kid I was just like this is an amazing adventure I like need to know what happens next um you got like so caught up in the politics of what's going on which like you know a very politics heavy fantasy is like a kid is hard to find but it's so it's like kids get it it's so accessible Mm -hmm. we all have like playground politics um but then you know as an I grew up sort of reading this series. It's five books. And um, by the end, I had realized how much had been seeded in this first book and like how much in terms of like themes and um, just like questions that you're left with even at the end. And so I just, you know, I kept thinking about this book as like, like I find it very moving today Mm -hmm. to to think about like the story and the themes. Um, And so I also feel like I, re- I reread this book for this podcast, not that I really need an excuse. Um, and I was just like, yes, this is wonderful. Like it's this like really fast paced adventure, but also like this sense of like, I don't know, not melancholy, but something, something similar to it where it's this like very, I'm bl- I, you know, for a writer, I'm bad at words. Um, no, but I get exactly what you're saying here, though, because that's one of the things that struck me about this book. At first, I was thinking, you know, how is this different from some of the other, you know, middle grade, you know, portal fantasies? You think of maybe Narnia, you think of several others that sort mm-hmm. of follow this idea where you're now in a new world and you're the outsider looking in. But the thing that struck me is how mature this mm-hmm. these books are, at least this first book. And from what I've heard about the rest of the series continues to get more mature and more serious. Yes. Um, Gregor from the beginning, you know, the family is struggling financially. He has to basically parent his younger sister. They, he's dealing with grief and loss and just trying to find his place in the world. And then he's thrust into this world where the other characters are grieving too, in many different ways. And they're dealing with trauma and they're dealing with war. And these are big topics for a kid and they're handled with a great deal of care. You get this sort of great balance between a fast paced 
sort of quest series and then also the politics and the character building. And I was surprised that Suzanne Collins had space for all of that in such a short book, but it all came through. Yeah, she really, she really hits you, but it's not, it doesn't feel like an issue book and there's nothing wrong Mm -hmm. with issue books. And I've loved plenty of them, but it, you know, it starts out with a, you know, lower middle class family sort of struggling after the loss of their one of their parents and like trying to figure out where to go from there Gregor is feeling very you know lonely and alienated which I think something that any kid can like instantly find a way to relate to and then you know he goes into this underworld and he meets these other kids who have also faced their own sorts of traumas and losses and you know are um fighting in in wars and like understanding the reality of that and this book is literally there's like a not theme but like it talks about genocide um Mm -hmm. and like war crimes which is I did not pick up on when I was eight and reading this book um although I understood like that there was something really serious and bad happening but now rereading it as an adult I like understand what she is trying to reference and like the kind of world she's trying to build and Mm -hmm. then I think another sort of theme that I love and that I love to write about and I also love to read about is this idea of like prophecy and fate versus choice and free Mm -hmm. will and that's a theme throughout the entire um Underland Chronicles um so for readers who don't know um this book and every book features a prophecy that was made hundreds of years ago that has to do with Gregor usually. And in almost every case, but the trope doesn't really get old, Gregor is trying to avoid some potential doom that the prophecy um, is foretelling, but it never turns out exactly the way he thinks it's going to. And sometimes even choices that he thinks he's making Um, because of the prophecy end up actually being you know his own free will that like changes the outcome and vice versa and I think that's a really interesting tension to play with especially in a kid's book yeah yeah made me think of uh Kaike actually when I was sort of reading the two together and I was like you know you do see that combination of you know what's been foretold by the gods what what role do we have and what agency do we have in this in this universe where so much has already been written, you know, exactly. and Gregor being this kind of outsider, the way Kaike feels like an outsider and in, in a lot of the world, you know, trying to deal with what's been sort of written around the character. So that definitely sort of brought the two together for me, but you're, you're right that the idea of prophecy. And I mean, it's not an unusual concept in middle grade mm-hmm. books to see these prophecies, you know, this book did the middle grade thing at the end where it's like, wait, there's another one. And then the book ends yeah. and you're like, okay, I know where the sequel's going, which is fine. I mean, obviously I'm not the intended audience as a 27 year old woman, but it, it's still, there was still a lot of charm in the idea of, you know, what role do you have? What responsibility do you have here? Because in many ways, Gregor's not really responsible for the Underland. Like he was thrown in here, you know, but he, you know, decides what's important to him and he creates his loyalties to the people around him. And that that's very admirable. He, he was a very likable character, a complex one, I think, you know, a, mm-hmm. a kid that I feel like if you knew this kid kind of in real life, he'd be hard to get along with in some ways, but yeah. a very likable character. Yeah, and I think, you know, it does do all of those classic middle grade tropes. And I think that's what 
made it like catnip for you know eight or nine year old me um, and what kept me coming back to the series um but yeah I also think that it by the end so I don't want to like spoil the the whole series or anything but um as the books get darker um I think something that I appreciate and that's even present in this book is that there's not necessarily like a super happy ending. Um, mm-hmm. So the way the book, th- this book ends, which I think I feel okay spoiling a 19 year old book. Yeah. But, normally um, we say no spoilers on the show, but this is a 19 year old middle grade book. Like if you were going to pick this up, you could probably sense some aspect to the ending. So yeah, go ahead and spoil. So Gregor finds his father who they thought was lost and he's been sort of held captive for a long time. And even at the end, after they've rescued him and everything um, and they're returning back home, there's this undercurrent of the fact that his father is like very traumatized and is not, things are not going to return to normal, even if they like accomplished their goal and got their happy ending. And mm-hmm. that continues throughout the series to where the end of the series is like so fitting and of course it's middle grade so like you do sort of get the like good is triumphing kind of thing and yet the characters are like deeply affected by what they've gone through and they're like not the same and they're never and it's clear that they will not ever be the same because of the, their experiences and I think that's um that's rare in yeah. middle grade I think that you see that this effect on children and um I just think it was it's really powerful and that's why that's I think one of the big reasons that this book has stuck with me is because it was one of the few books I read as a kid where like you could win and there would still be consequences and I think Mm -hmm. that just like so much more what the real world is like um and that's that sort of has stuck with me yeah Yeah, I'm obsessed with this book (laughs) as a a full-grown adult I I love that's the these are the best episodes where the guest is clearly obsessed with the book that's like why I started this whole thing but I I love what you mean about you know the endings being complicated because you're right in this ending like obviously there's still trauma there's still change that's happened and maybe I'm reading a lot into this but you also have to think about like the, the the grounding in reality this book has and maybe I'm reading into this but this book you know takes place in New York City it came out in 2003 which presumably Suzanne mm-hmm. Collins is probably writing this in 2001 yes it deals with the loss of a parent there's like some real trauma here you you think about something like 9/11 if you put it in that kind of context you know you, you lose somebody and you are and even if you have survived something traumatic like that that's going to stay with you in one way shape or form Absolutely. And I don't think that's a stretch because later books do cover topics like, you know, war and genocide and like, what does it mean to try to get revenge on a group for like Mm -hmm. the sins of the individual? And what does it mean to try to take like preemptive action? And is it right to try to um, stop someone for what you think they're going to do as opposed to what they've done? And that like, those are a lot of the themes of, of later books. And there's this one scene in in book four that I will literally never stop thinking about. That's basically this, this the, on the page scene of genocide happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just like extremely, there's extremely hard hitting topics and um, politics and war that's going on in this book. So I don't think it's a stretch at all because I think, I think that's the point. I, I yeah. think that's the point of the series. 
Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And one thing that I liked about this book is that it's not a very clear cut good guys and bad guys no. kind of story. Because what Gregor finds out, you know, he spends a lot of time with the humans of the Underland who are very similar to humans above ground, but they have, you know, differences in leadership. They they look mm-hmm. different from not being exposed to light, stuff like that. But we observe through Gregor, an outsider, how the humans view some of the other species in the Underland. And then we're also able to see the well-developed um, cultures and societal practices that those cultures have, even though they're different from humanity. Yes. Humanity is kind of looking at them as lesser, but Gregor's able to see, like the scene I kept coming to and thinking about was when Boots, the adorable little two-year-old who I loved reading about, mm-hmm. um, Boots is forming a close relationship with the crawlers, which are giant cockroaches. Yeah. And it's like, they're cockroaches, they're gross, but she immediately takes to them. She recognizes the difference between them and they do like an honoring dance for her. And they are basically just pledge loyalty to her. And they're witnessing this dance and they realize, you know, this is a sacred cultural practice for these brooches. Mm-hmm. And it's easy to look down on that. But Gregor is seeing that for what it is and seeing like how special his little sister is to this whole group of people. And I just thought that was a really great you know, element of world building to develop these other cultures and not just see them as underneath the humans. Oh, tick forever (laughs) in my heart. Um, But yeah, no, I I definitely agree. And I think that's, you know, part of this story and then not just this book, but later books, but even in this one, you know, you start out by getting the perspective of the humans who clearly Mm -hmm. feel like they're in the right and they have the all the knowledge required to make all the decisions for everybody and then as time goes on you sort of you know you discover that maybe the rats are not I mean some of them are definitely evil but some of them might actually not be and Mm -hmm. you know maybe they're as affected by prejudice as they are by anything else and um, all of these cultures that you're told are sort of simplistic and can't make choices for themselves you realize are actually fully capable of making choices for themselves and just haven't been allowed to and in a way how sort of destructive the introduction of humans was to this ecosystem that existed before humans you know Mm -hmm. in the story humans come to the underland and they adapt to it and at at this point in the story they're sort of a fixture of the place but Mm -hmm. for a long time there were no humans in the underland there were just the creatures who had their own history and culture and wars and peace and all of that without the humans and the humans have sort of disrupted it and because of the tension between humans and other groups they're in this sort of perpetual conflict um and if that's not you know thematic and relevant to today I don't know what is yeah oh my gosh colonization right there and it's like in words we like didn't know when we were children but there it is you know and you know you're rooting for some of them because they, it, it's a complicated, it's sort of one of the biggest complexities of colonization is if a, if people colonize a place and now they've been there for 500 years and their whole history now, they know nothing but this place. Like, mm-hmm. are they still colonizers? Do they still have no right to this place? Or like, mm-hmm. do, are, are they now equal inhabitants and have to be given some space? And like, is it right to force other people to adapt to the presence of these people who have now like you know these very complicated questions that are not said out loud in the book but reading it as an adult you start thinking about it 
Oh my gosh, they're so, but I did not, when I wrote my notes for this episode, I was like, I knew like what I wanted to talk about, but I was also like, how much can we say about a tiny little middle grade book that I didn't even read when I was a kid, but I'm like, so much, so I could much write like I could write a whole book about this book, but that's because I'm probably the biggest Underland Chronicles fangirl. Like, you know, I've evangelized my friends and my friend who got me into it is obviously still loves it, but even she's like, you're a little intense about this. <laughs> And I appreciate this intensity. And so this is where I usually come into, you know, if you can offer other books that might be similar, obviously nothing's going to replace the Underland Chronicles in your heart. But if you had to suggest other books that might be recommended to someone who enjoyed these, what would you recommend? So when you mentioned this at the beginning, before we started, I think before we started recording, um, but I immediately thought of another book I read, not I think a, a couple years later, that gave me the same feeling, even though I don't think it's like the same, which is The Hero and the Crown by Robin McKinley, um, mm, which is that. another, it's another kid's book. I want to like recommend another um, kid's book, but it's mm -hmm. basically the story of this young girl who is sort of like she's kind of an outcast not really but she's like sort of I guess ostracized is the right word um but eventually you know she becomes this like great hero and it's sort of the story of how she gets there and the sacrifices she has to make to get there and like war and who is really like all of those sorts of questions um and I really love it I actually think I have it yeah, it's still on my shelf, uh, but I haven't reread it in a while, so I can't give a better plot summary than that. But I really, I, I like that book. I love, I love kids books. Um, another one of my favorite ever books is a picture book called The Paper Bag Princess. So I've read that. Okay, that's a cute one. I really like The Paper Bag Princess. So I like, I love kids books. I mean, I love adult books too. Don't get me wrong; that's pretty much all I read these days. But kids books hit different. <laughs> They do. They totally do. Especially when you've had them in your life for so long. Like I feel like I go very few episodes without talking about my favorite kids books, which are The Trumpet of the Swan by E.B. White or Westlandia by Paul Fleischman. Like there are these books that mm -hmm. I have on my shelf and I'll never get rid of and I'll talk about them whenever I can. It was hard coming up with comps for this one just because I haven't read a lot of kids books. Like my notes here literally says IDK, maybe the Hunger Games, but I haven't read them yet. But like, no, that's just the same author. It's well, definitely so still Games. mature, still mature subject matter for sure. Yeah, the Hunger Games actually have like pretty similar, some similar themes, which is like, you know, like class differences, you know, war, trauma, mm -hmm the horrors of what kids have to go through, you know, grief, etc. Yeah. Um, so in many ways, it's like, clear that she wrote both of these books. And like, um, they're like variations on a theme. Um, mm -hmm. I just think that like, The Hunger Games is also very dystopian. And a lot yeah. of it is about the dystopia and like the cultural commentary of the dystopia, which is like really interesting and important. But I mm -hmm. think that's what sort of makes them like, Two separate categories also hunger games is for much older readers but right um you know i like both the series i just i love the underland chronicles yeah your your affection for the underland chronicles reminded me of another series a series i really liked when i was a kid which were the artemis fowl books yes um and artemis fowl you know not as likable of a character as Gregor, I think, but Artemis himself, you know, he, there is that kind of, you know, an outsider in a new world and a, getting accustomed to a new way of doing things. So I think if you're looking for 
almost that portal idea, but also just stepping into a new culture and learning their ways of life, especially in the first book. Um, I don't even remember the plots of all of them, but I remember reading them all when I was about eight or nine and just devouring them. But there's something about a really immersive series that like still brings tingles to you, even when you're an adult. And Artemis Fowl, as the world, not, not, not so much in the first book, but as the world expands, does have a lot of questions to ask about, like, cultural contact and, like, mm-hmm. um, in-groups and out-groups and, like, yeah. discrimination and all of those topics. And, yeah, you know, you kind of have to wait for Artemis to, like, grow a conscience, which takes a little <laughs> while. Um, <laughs> but that's what, that's what makes that, those books so fun, is that Artemis is, like, a very evil 12-year-old child. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, and it takes him a solid like three to four books to not be evil I remember that yeah for sure when he finally good you're like cheering it's been a thousand pages (laughs) (laughs) but I'm so glad you chose this book because partially because I was getting really bogged down with some very serious adult books that I've been reading a lot for the show and it was really nice to take a step back in time a little bit and read something meant for a younger audience but also read something with a lot of care, a lot of love. Like this was not a throwaway middle grade project. You know, you could tell a lot of work and effort went into this project. And even though I don't have the same affection for it as you do with, you know, growing up with this book for 20 years, but I I can definitely see the merits. And if you're a middle grade reader or you have middle grade age people in your life, you know, this is definitely a book I'd pick up and I'm interested in the rest of them now. I'm probably going to pick up the rest of them at some point. I mean, they're fast. Like I think maybe book five is like a little chunkier, but like a little chunkier for middle grade. Um, But they're, they're fast, like, you know, one afternoon kind of reads. Um, But yeah, four and five are my absolute favorite. So yeah, I'm interested now for sure. And uh, before we close out today, um, can you tell us a little bit about where we can find you and your book? Yeah. So I am on social media at, at Vaishna, right? So V I, wow, I misspelled that. V-A-I-S-H-N-A writes um, on Twitter and Instagram. Um, And my book is out now with Book of the Month and will be out April 26th everywhere in the U.S. and then May 12th in the U.K. Oh, my God. That's so exciting. And trust me, I misspell my name all the time, like when I spell it out. And I'm like, I get mad at other people for doing that. I'm like, M-A-F. And I'm like, oh, gosh. I was writing like a letter earlier and I literally misspelled my name like I wrote the whole letter just fine got to my name misspelled it it's like where's the white out I'm not rewriting this whole thing so you know our parents love our parents loved those multi-syllabic names and you know most of the time I love my name too but like the typos are real and the you know I'm like so thankful for autocorrect knowing (laughs) learning my name and then telling me when I've messed it up I absolutely love that. And so thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for writing Kaikei. It was such a great read. I want all of you guys to pick it up. All my all my fantasy myth loving listeners like this is this is for you. All my South Asian listeners, this is for you. I know there's a lot of crossover in those two groups. And so you all are going to love this. Thank you. Thank you all for listening. If you like the show, please let us know about it. We're on Apple's podcast, Google, Spotify, all those platforms have a way to rate and leave a review. Seriously, it's much appreciated. 
We have new episodes every Thursday, and next week it's the end of the month, so we're here for another episode of the Short Story Book Club, and next week we're talking about an essay, and not just an essay, a funny essay. Guest is Jasmine Vias, who you might remember from our episode on What We Carry, and we're talking about The Worst Friend Date I Ever Had by Samantha Irby. Yes, that's the name of the essay. It's super funny. You're all going to really love it. Our discussion is awesome and very laid back and super fun and it's a really really short read so you definitely want to join us for this one and you definitely want to read the essay first there will be a link to it in the show notes as well as a link to Vaishnavi's book and some names of all the other books that we discussed today until then until next week have fun and happy reading